Welcome to Writer Types, great conversations with today's top crime and mystery writers. My name is Eric Beatner, and I'm here with the usual suspect, S.W. Loudon. Steve, who is on the show today? Legendary author Lawrence Block sits down with us and has a low bar for the success of the interview. I don't want to start something that I'm going to die in the middle of. And author Karen Olson gives us her thoughts after binging all 26 episodes of Writer Types. I still don't completely understand it. Plus, we hear about the classic battle of Hollywood versus the author, all of which is brought to you by our friends at Rare Bird Books. A few Rare Bird titles that Writer Types listeners might enjoy include Raylan Goes to Detroit by Peter Leonard, Beethoven's Tenth by Richard Kluger, and Watch by Keith Buckley. Find out more about their excellent books at rarebirdbooks.com. Well, Steve, we're back from Florida, and I certainly hope everybody enjoyed the pair of BoucherCon specials. So, uh, you read anything good lately? Well, you already know what's good, Eric, because you and Aaron Philip Clark suggested The Prone Gunman, which I loved. And then uh, a book that's been on my TBR for a really long time, with Occasional Music by Jonathan Lethem. And that's a fun mix of noir and sci-fi with anthropomorphized kangaroos. Um, <laughs> and then I jumped out of the genre and read Lake Success by Gary Steingart. This is some more mainstream literary fiction, but I loved his previous novel, Super Sad True Love Story. So I was really excited to read this one. And right now I'm reading a true crime book called To the Bridge by Nancy Rommelman. It's a heartbreaking story about a mother in Oregon who throws her two kids off of a bridge in the middle of the night. Oh my dark stuff. So been kind of all over the place, but I've been really on a tear with books. How about you? Well, I just uh, got a chance to read Charles Gate Confidential by Scott Vondoviak. This is a, 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 one of the latest hard case crime novels. And I was really looking forward to this and I'm actually really looking forward to our conversation with Scott that's coming up in, in a couple of weeks because Charles Gate is the name of a building in Boston that I used to live in. Wow. <laughs> it was it was my college dorm, as it was for Scott. And uh, there used to be all these myths and legends about this building that we all heard of when you moved in. It was supposed to be haunted. There was, you know, murders that took place there because this building, had, it was a gorgeous, you know, old historical building in Boston. So it had a lot of history to it. And Scott has taken some of the myths and legends around this building and crafted it into a novel that I, you, know, you don't have to live in the building for this novel to be really entertaining. And uh, so I highly recommend it. And we're going to discuss that more in a later episode. But uh, Charles Gate Confidential was definitely one of my top reads of the year. Well, while we were in Florida at BoucherCon, Steve, we got a chance to talk to some incredible authors that we will be doling out these interviews for you over the next coming weeks. And we're going to start this time with one of the true giants of crime fiction. That's right. We sat down with none other than Lawrence Block to learn a little from his decades of experience. Thank you so much for joining us. I'll get it right off the top. Big fan. I've read a ton of your work. Uh, you've reissued several of your older novels in, in recent years, and I want to know what that's like to go back to some of those older books. Like, are some of those books you haven't even looked at in years and years? Well, it's uh, the result of uh, the two chief motivators, 
in my life, which are ego and avarice. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and of course, the technological ability to do this. Uh, when uh, Kindle Direct Publishing started um, making this avenue available, uh, I was uh, delighted. I didn't know then that I would reissue quite as many books as I have. But one gets hooked on it, and it's, it's a pleasure. Well, and you've pulled out a lot of those books that you wrote under different names in some of those early days. Like, were, were those books that uh, were, it was almost like reading a whole new book? Like, do you even remember writing those? <laughs> well, fortunately, the uh, state of the technology is such that one can republish a book without reading it. <laughs> Good to know. Smart. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I didn't too much want to do the, uh, that to, to uh, read it because I figured I'd be reading it with uh, a much older eye than uh, applied when I wrote it. I might find things I didn't like. Uh, and the last thing I wanted to do was try editing early work. I'd much rather it just uh, be what it was. That's interesting, though, for somebody who's done so much and had such a successful career that you still have that innate writer in you that you would look at your own work with such a critical eye, even across, uh, across several decades. Well, I'm not sure the eye would be all that critical. <laughs> uh, I think I probably would, would tend to focus on what I like. <laughs> That's good. I can't even do that for stuff I wrote last year. Yeah. <laughs> so you've literally done it all. So I guess the question is, why not relax and just enjoy your status as a grandmaster and make people like Eric and I go around and fetch coffee for you and, and arrange massages and that kind of thing? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm certainly semi-retired. I'm uh, taking things rather easy. Uh, I do have a new novella, a new Matthew Scudder uh, book coming out from Subterranean Press in January. Fantastic. Oh. And it, uh, it came as a great surprise to me, I have to tell you. I thought I was done writing books about the character. I suspect that what, whatever writing I continue to do, and, you know, everybody stops writing sooner or later, but uh, that any writing I continue to do will probably be, oh, short story or novella length. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the new Scudder, uh, A Time to Scatter Stones, is just about 30,000 words, which is a comfortable length, uh, and I like that. And nowadays, one can find ways to publish something that, that length. That right. didn't used to be the case. Yeah. And it's not that much shorter than the first Scudder novels. The first three Scudder novels were a, a little under 50,000 words. Oh, wow. I know I was talking last night with uh, Ian Rankin and Mark Bellingham, and they were uh, talking about a, a mutual friend, John Harvey, the, the British novelist. And he is uh, he's a few months younger than I and he said that he thinks he's just done with novels, that it's going to be shorter works uh, fr from here on in. And I've had much the same feeling. I don't know whether uh, once he hears the clock ticking and figures, <laughs> I, I don't want to start something that I'm going to die in the middle of. <laughs> but and, and I don't, really. <laughs> but uh, 
I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what it is, but I have the same um, oh intuitive feeling about what the future may hold. Right. Yeah, and and I, certainly people's attention spans, readers' attention spans, have gotten more challenged over the well, years as well. Especially for my work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, it, it, in all your travels and meeting all these other authors and, and people that you've surely befriended over the years, do you have any rivals? Like, do you have a nemesis out there? <laughs> Gee, I don't think so. Um, I don't see writing as that competitive an, an occupation. One... Uh, one competes with one's own self, one competes with uh, other media, probably, for attention. But I don't... I, I know uh, one, uh, one affirmation that I, I put together for a, a seminar that I ran many, many years ago was uh, I gain whenever a, another writer succeeds. Oh, great. Yeah. And I think that's true. Yeah. That's, it was one of the most amazing things when I first entered into this, this world like of, of writing novels, specifically crime and mystery, coming from a screenwriting background where it was very cutthroat and people didn't want you to succeed because that meant less success for them. It is so welcoming to all levels of the publishing industry. It's, it was really amazing. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's very different. And in screenwriting, you know, two people are up, are up for the same job. One gets it, one doesn't. It is competitive in that way. I, I don't see uh, uh, writing of uh, prose fiction uh, uh, in, in that respect. Yeah. Well, you have written several books in different series. Uh, when do you know a story is right for a particular character versus another one of your characters? Well, that's just sort of how it comes. Uh, it's, it, it, all, it comes as a package that way. I don't, I don't think, well, this is a, a story who will, who will it be for. It, 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 it gels that way. But I, like, are, did you ever think, like, oh, I just finished a Scudder, I want to write a Bernie book, and just to sort of mix things up, or did, was it just the spark of inspiration no, I generally, it's generally, I just finished such and such, I never want to write anything again. <laughs> I know that feeling. For You've thrown in the towel hundreds of times over the years. Yeah, I know, I know, that, I know that feeling pretty well. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> you must have given hundreds of interviews over the years, so we want to give you the chance, as your interviewers, what's one question that nobody's ever asked you that you've been waiting for someone to ask? That's it. That's it? <laughs> that was the one. I we nailed it. <laughs> you know, once in a lifetime. <laughs> that was great for Lawrence Block to sit down with us. It was it was a real kind of fanboy moment for me, and I was actually really amazed that even after everything that he's accomplished, he still has a little bit of uh, that writerly insecurity. He's very self-deprecating. It was really good to see. Everything about that that interview was mind blowing. Just how kind he was to give us his time, and then just how honestly he answered all of our ridiculous questions. Yes, <laughs> we do get ridiculous, don't we? I blame you most for most of that. <laughs> well, when we were in Florida, you know, although we did not win the Anthony Award for best online content. Wait, wh what? <laughs> that's, that's not supposed to be a spoiler to you. You were you, there. You're you're telling me this now. <laughs> Well, even though we didn't win, several of our friends did win awards. 
as you already know, they awarded the Barry, the McCavity, and the Seamus, and the Anthony Award that weekend. And for our unpanel this time, we reached out to a few of winners who also happened to be former guests of the show to hear about their experience taking home the prize. This is Meg Gardner, author of Unsub, which won the 2018 Barry Award for Best Thriller. I was delighted that I was in St. Petersburg at BoucherCon when the award was announced. I was surprised. I was honored. I was really not expecting it. I think I walked up to the podium to accept the award with my hands pressed against my cheeks like the Home Alone poster. It was especially gratifying to be chosen from such a stellar list of nominees. In particular, I was truly honored to be on this list with Thomas Perry and his novel, The Old Man. Tom was the editor of the first short story that I ever had published in a small university literary magazine. To have Unsub nominated alongside his book means more than I can really express. It was, <laughs> it was a wonderful night. Hi, this is Attica Locke, author of Bluebird, Bluebird, and winner of the Anthony Award for Best Novel, uh, which absolutely floored me. I was spending that weekend actually working on the sequel to this book and was just engrossed in that and getting my daughter ready to go back to school and all of this kind of stuff. And then on Twitter, I got this notification, congratulations, Attica. And I hadn't heard it official from anybody else, so I asked, the guy said, you won. And I was like, I did? Me? What? And then finally, slowly, I start hearing from my editor and I start hearing from other people on Twitter who are in the room. And it just is one of the most special moments to be honored by people who do what you do and who read what you like to read, I just don't think that there's a greater honor. Um, I'm just a move beyond words. I'm so happy. And I just hate that I wasn't able to be there in person. This is Kristen LaBianca, author of the Roxanne Weary Mystery Series. And this year I went to BoucherCon with three nominations uh, for Anthony Award, the McCavity Award, and the Seamus Award, all for Best First Novel for my debut, The Last Place You Look. And I went down to Florida assuming I wouldn't win because I never win anything. I don't even win on scratch-off lottery tickets, but it would be great to celebrate with the winners and just be in the amazing crime fiction community around people who love the same kind of books that I do. So it was to my complete shock and delight that on Saturday night I won the Seamus Award for Best First PI Novel. And it was just such a thrill. It was so unexpected, so exciting, such an honor to be recognized by the Private Eye Writers of America, uh, the awards committee, and just also by all of the readers, people who, who are always telling me that they love the series, they love Roxanne. And it's, it's really great that I am able to write this series about a, a queer detective and have mainstream audiences really embrace her. And I'm happy to say that I'm working on my copy edits for the third book, I'll be writing the fourth book soon, and I can't wait to continue down this journey. It's such an honor. Next up, we ask five questions to one of the very first authors I met, Steve. Our debut novels came out right around the same time, and I've known Stephen J. Schwartz for, geez, over a decade now. In addition to his novels, he's edited a collection of essays called Hollywood versus the Author. Here's five questions with Stephen J. Schwartz. 
All right, so you spent a number of years developing screenplays before becoming a published author yourself. What happened to make you want to jump from one side of the pitch table to the other? You know, when you're doing development, you're really kind of working on everyone else's projects. You know, you're always, you're never really the storyteller. So I realized that in, in Hollywood, there are a handful of storytellers. There's the, the screenwriters, directors, actors can be storytellers, and that's kind of it. So I really wanted to be a storyteller and I had to leave uh, the industry and take a day job and just start writing. And uh, and I got kind of tired of the film business, got very tired of writing screenplays and, and seeing nothing really happen to them. Because as a screenwriter, you are always writing an outline for a movie. You're not really writing the movie. You're not writing anything that anyone reads, really. Um, you're writing an outline for a director who's the storyteller for his vision. And the odds of you actually seeing what you've written appear on the screen, you'll, you'll almost never, ever see that. But as an author, you write your work, you, you're the director, the cinematographer, the, the editor, you're everything you know, in the process. So when you write a novel, you actually get your story told. But now you did uh, dip your toe into the film world a little bit because earlier this year, uh, your novel Boulevard was adapted into a short film. Is that right? Yeah, so that that was a pretty fun experience, and and you know it, it also is a it's a good lesson for us authors to keep our contact uh, pages on our websites up and active, <laughs> because uh, I got the contact page up and running, and the very next day, I got an email from this uh, director, and he said, "Hey, I just want to know if I can get the rights to your book because I'm I want to do a short film." And uh, you know, before long, they're they're casting it. They got a phenomenal cast. Um, they let me play a, a dead guy, you know, a murder victim um, <laughs> in the film. There you go, Stephen. You you try to get out, and they pulled you back in. That so I've learned two things: you you can't yes. escape Hollywood, and you got to keep your author contact page updated. Um, yes. You also recently edited a collection of nonfiction stories called Hollywood versus the Author, which is coming out from Rare Bird Books. Uh, why is now the right time to release these first-hand author accounts out into the wild? You know, when I when I became an author, you know, one of the things I learned is that every author also wants to sell the screen rights to their film. Everyone is excited about the idea of having their book series become the next Dexter or Game of Thrones, right? So everyone was always asking about that. And I knew a little bit about it from being on the development side. And I, I knew the hell of the process. I knew the hell of the development room. You know, being in sometimes the smartest guy in the room, right? Guy or girl in the room. Oftentimes, you know, they're mature writers. They sold their novel. They, they go into a development meeting with producers and development execs and assistants and everybody. And everyone's got an idea of what they should do now with this novel to adapt it. And it rarely aligns with what the author really had in mind. Let's talk about this uh, this table of contents. The, the list of contributors for Hollywood versus the author, it is really impressive. Uh, you've got everybody from Michael Connelly and Tess Garrison to Naomi Hirahara, even Lawrence Block. I mean, yeah. did it take a whole lot of coaxing to get them to sort of spill their guts about uh, maybe the not so savory side of Hollywood? <laughs> the thing about all of these essays is that you get a good sense of every aspect from from 18 different um, authors, from the good experiences, the bad experiences, to tie-in novels. Um, I mean, it just, it really captures everything uh, that you can imagine. 
a few of them had great stories, like Jeff Parker uh, only had good things to say, right? And Lee Goldberg had some funny things to say, and but it was still mostly a very positive experience. And then I was blessed, you know, that Michael Connolly, I mean, the people who are Michael Connolly fans are going to be so excited about this because he tells the story of how he created Bosch, the TV series, how he had to buy back the rights, how he had to basically, you know, put his house on the line to be able to afford to buy back the rights and then shop it around and, and really put his neck on the line to do it. And it's called, his essay is called Betting on Bosch. Wow. It, it sounds fascinating. You know, when I, when I think about Hollywood versus the author, one of the most succinct and famous pieces of Hollywood advice ever was given by Betty Davis when she was asked if she had any advice for uh, starlets who were coming to Hollywood, she told them to take Fountain, um, yeah. which is a snarky way of saying to take a surface street versus the freeway. Uh, yeah. Are there any equally memorable nuggets from Hollywood versus the author that readers can expect? There's one that really says a lot. Very, very topical. It's from Alexandra Sokolov's essay. Uh, and the quote is, a woman wouldn't do that. It says, um, a woman wouldn't do that. You have to picture this being said in all earnestness, with no trace of irony, by a table full of male executives and producers to the screenwriter. The screenwriter who's the only woman in the room. Okay. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, <laughs> right. God. She experienced this over and over and over again as a, as a screenwriter men telling her what a woman would or would not do. I placed her um, her essay at the very end, so that's kind of the last word that you see, which I think is incredibly topical and, and, and hopefully will mean a lot in this day and age. It's always great to catch up with Stephen, and now is your chance to win a copy of Hollywood versus the Author in yet another Writer Types book giveaway. All you have to do is find us on Twitter at writer types and give us your favorite movie adaptation of a book. So give us one that got it right, or maybe it was even better than the book. I know that's sacrilege to say. <laughs> do you love Fight Club? Maybe a classic like Gone with the Wind? Tell us for your chance to win a copy of this fascinating collection. Make sure to tag writer types on Twitter and use hashtag HVA. Well, when we were in Florida, we also had a chance to talk with author Karen Olson. Karen is the author of the Black Hat Thriller series and, as we learned, has terrible luck with cars and trees. We're doing this interview at BoucherCon in Florida. Is it true that you once lived here in the Sunshine State and left because you couldn't afford a car with air conditioning? Yes, I did live here. I lived in Miami for two years. And I had a 1976 Toyota Celica, which was a fabulous car and unfortunately died when a tree fell on it during a hurricane in Connecticut. Wait, <laughs> wait, 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 hold on. How'd that happen? I was actually on vacation in England visiting my sister and we had Hurricane Gloria in 1985. And I, saw, I was at the bed and breakfast and I saw on the TV that there was a hurricane. So I called, I had to like use the pay phone at that point, oh, no wow. cell phones. I called my parents to see if they were okay. And they said, oh, we're watching the trees go down in the backyard. Well, one of them fell on my car because they had moved it from my apartment to their house because they thought it would be safer. Lost no trees at my apartment. Oh, come on, mom and dad. <laughs> I just think it's, 
But there Fantas- was no air conditioning. <laughs> so fantastically ironic that you left Florida because of the weather and your car got destroyed by a hurricane in Connecticut. How yes. Does- that's the definition of irony. Take, take that, Alanis Morissette. <laughs> well, it sounds like you're a world traveler, too. You left one state to go to another, and you're in another country. You're, you're all over the place. I try to travel as much as I can. I was a travel editor at the New Haven Register uh-huh. um, for several years. I was the travel editor who did not travel because I had a small child and very limited vacation time. So some of your early uh, books were the, the tattoo shop mysteries. So what inspired you to write a series about a tattoo shop? Uh, my publisher asked me to write it. Um, That's not the answer I want. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were ending my Annie Seymour series because I had started with Mysterious Press, and then my ed- they, they folded, and my editor went to Penguin, and they, they did the second two Annie Seymour books, but then they said, oh, no, we're a cozy imprint, so we have to do a cozy. And I said, yeah, I don't want to do a cozy. And they said, we're looking for a tattoo shop mystery. And I said, I have no tattoos. And she said, we don't care. You can write edgy. So I said, okay, I can do that. So I was convinced, and I wrote four books, and then they canceled me because the books were too edgy. (laughs) Again with the irony. I know. (laughs) But now, over the course of four books, you were never inspired to go under the needle Oh, no, yourself? the books are why I never got one. Oh, you know too much. I, it frightens me, the pain. and Although somebody said I should get one like when I first started, and I said, you know, the problem with that is if I have a tattoo because of this series, when the series ends or my, my, it, it just fails, I do not want like a constant reminder forever of my failed literary effort like Uh permanently tattooed on my person well that's actually a fantastic segue because folks we've got a writer types first karen and your two co-hosts are going to leave baushakan right now and go get writer types tattoos on us (laughs) i mean on all three of us but we're buying guaranteed never to regret (laughs) i think it's a really good idea i'm going to give you a couple minutes to think it over (laughs) There's no thinking. No. <laughs> well, all right. So you, you're writing now the Black Hat thriller series, and these are capital T thrillers, right? Yes. The, the, well, it's more it's suspense okay. thrillers. Yes. It's, it, are you now sort of in writing the kind of stuff that you always wanted to? Yes. It, it has it been a slow evolution to this, or is this? It, it just took a while to get to where you knew you wanted to be all along. Well, the cozy thing was a diversion, right? And they paid me. And that's never a bad thing. Yeah, I wonder what that's like. What writers get? Writers get paid. <laughs> she's just lying. She's making stuff up. Now. Yeah, I mean, she, she's lying to us. Obviously, she's a storyteller. Anyway, back to the interview. The, I, I've always wanted to write something darker. I'm definitely. That's what I like to read. What's the scariest thing you've found out about computer hacking in doing your research? Never use the credit card thing at the gas station. Oh. Because they're, they're, you can easily get hacked. That's called skimming, right? When yes. you put it in the, yeah. the reader? Yeah, and every time I go to an ATM machine now, I like um, check to see if there's like something glued to the thing that you put your card in, because that's how they get you. And this, the scary thing now is they don't even have to like take that off anymore. They do it all by Bluetooth. Oh. 
So you can just put your card in there and they can be anywhere and have all of your information. Oh, wow. It's also a little creepy because you can go on the dark web and for about $35 buy about 500 people's credit card information. Wow. Everything, social security, the whole kit and caboodle. When you entered into the series and you, and you were starting to write about Tina Adler, I mean, how much were you already someone who was like tech savvy? Or did you, oh, you were, I've never been tech no, savvy. No. <laughs> no. Uh, well, the thing is, is Hidden was supposed to be a standalone and she hasn't had a computer for 15 years. And I said, oh, that's great because she doesn't know anything anymore either. And I don't know anything. So that's great. And then my editor said, oh, we'd really like a series. And I said, oh, I guess I have to learn something. <laughs> so. But you're a journalist and a researcher by nature, so it must have been easy for you to learn about hacking. It's not an easy thing. There's a Amazon, on Amazon Prime, they had a, a documentary about Bitcoin, and I watched it while I was on the elliptical at the gym, and I had to watch it like four times before I actually sort of understood what Bitcoin was, and I still don't completely understand it. Well, that's actually great, because we get a lot of emails from our listeners, and they're trying to understand the concept behind blockchain, so if you could just go into that for 15 minutes, that would be wonderful. I have... I'd, I have no idea. <laughs> Neither do I. I just know the word blockchain, and I thought that sounded smart. Blockchain does it. It does. Just yeah. toss this around. You also work as an editor for a Yale medical journal. I did. I was the managing editor for the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine, okay. which is the oldest student-run medical journal in the country. It was founded in 1928. Well, but using... All of that experience, all of this research that you've done for over the years and, and, and all of your job experience, when can we expect a new series about a tattooed computer hacker trying to stop a biological pandemic? Oh, well, that would be interesting. See? That's yours. You can have that for free. You can have that for free. We're going to keep 25%. Just pay us in Bitcoin. Yeah, absolutely. Just blockchain. Just, I'll just send it through my Bitcoin wallet. Yeah. <laughs> And we've come full circle. <laughs> well, we can't end the show yet, Steve. We have a book to give away. Now nah, let's just end it. <laughs> no, that's not fair to, to the listeners, Steve. I'm still reeling from the fact that we didn't win that award. I've been operating <laughs> under the assumption that we had. <laughs> the only thing that makes me feel better is giving away books, Eric. We have a signed copy of Boise Long Pig Hunting Club by Nick Kolakowski. For one Lucky Writer Types listener who, inspired by that absolutely crazy title, gave us the title of their favorite Down and Out Books release. And our winner is... Henry Brock. Hey, Eric, what book did he choose? That's not important right now, Steve. <laughs> I feel like it's important to share with our listening audience the <laughs> truth of how we choose our winners. We choose randomly. That is the truth. He happened to choose my novel, The Devil Doesn't Want Me, as his favorite down and out title. But that, honest to goodness, it has nothing to do with how we pick things. So keep that in mind, all you listeners out there, for our next contest. <laughs> if you want to curry favor with the selection <laughs> committee. <laughs> he knows how to work the system. Come on. Yeah. Henry Brock's the smartest person who listens to this show. 
Henry Brock, you know, I will say this, Henry Brock, also an author uh, and the author of uh, a very good uh, mystery novel called Vicious Dogs that I had the chance to read. So uh, I'll, I'll write back at you, Henry. Wow. Well, maybe you just want a copy of his book. Congratulations, Henry. A signed copy of Boise Long Pig Hunting Club will be headed your way, courtesy of Down and Out Books. Well, Steve, fall is upon us, and another episode is behind us. What did we learn? Henry Brock taught us that if you want to win a book from writer types, mention Eric Beatner's book. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Lawrence Block taught us that reading your own book before publishing it is overrated. And Karen Olson taught us to never leave your car unattended in Connecticut. That's it for this one. Thanks again to our sponsors at Rare Bird Books. If you want to find out more about their excellent crime and mystery fiction, visit rarebirdbooks.com. You can find us on Twitter at WriterTypes. And if you don't already, subscribe to the show. And please take a second to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This show is produced and edited by Eric Beatner and S.W. Loudon. For more on Steve's books, visit swloudon.com. And for more on Eric's books, go to ericbeatner.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>